It was so nice last year when I came up here at this time of year. There were some fake lilies of the valley. But now I have some real ones. It's my favorite flower. In any case, it's great to be able to be here and deliver the Word of God to you. And I've given considerable thought and prayer as to the text to which I should turn for my last several weeks here uh, as your senior pastor at St. Stephen. And uh, here's the direction I'd like to go. Uh, This week and next week, we're going to be looking at uh, two texts that have been instrumental in my life. Uh, The one today uh, is the one that actually was used most instrumentally to, to bring me to a full commitment to Christ. And uh, then next week we're going to look at my favorite verse of my favorite chapter of my favorite book of my favorite book, Romans 8.28. But then in my last three messages I'm going to be delivering three sermons that I hope will prepare you for the next chapter of the Beacon on the Hill here at St. Stephen Church. But for today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 18 to 27, and uh, these verses as you'll see in, in a few minutes, um, were, were used, as I mentioned, to really bring me to a commitment to Christ. And you might recall that a few years ago, we actually preached verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, but I didn't get to preach on that text. Stu preached on that text, because I think I was away or something. And of course, we could just play the video of Stu, but that he wouldn't have the story that I had to tell about the text, but that's, that's coming later. Um, so please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Luke 9, 18 to 27. This is God's holy and inspired Word. Now it happened that as He was praying alone, the disciples were with Him, and He asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us. Please guide us. Please help us to understand this word. And may your spirit apply it to our hearts and lives, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is really a turning point in Luke's gospel, as you're going to see, as the question is put to those who have followed Jesus in terms of their understanding of his identity. But uh, the turning point in the text can be seen in three ways. It's a turning point in our understanding of Jesus' identity. Secondly, it's a turning point in understanding Jesus' mission. And thirdly, it's a turning point 
in the understanding of what it means to be Jesus' follower. Now, a lot has happened up to this point in Luke's gospel. We have seen his authority over disease. We've seen him raise the dead. And most recently, we've seen him transform a few loaves and fish into enough food to feed uh, a huge multitude. But now, and it's, I think, instructive for us that before Jesus is asking this question, he's praying. He's praying alone with the disciples. And as the fruit of this prayer, time of prayer, comes this question, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, this is a question that begged to be answered several times in Luke's gospel. The question was asked, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this he even commands the winds and water, and they obey him? Now Jesus is asking this question, who do the crowd say that I am? Now the setting here is important. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus and the disciples are way up north in Caesarea Philippi. That's called Caesarea Philippi because it needs to be distinguished between that and Caesarea by the sea, two different places. But what's unique about Caesarea Philippi is that it's the headwaters of the Jordan River And up there, there's also a great temple to the god Pan. Now, Pan was the god of shepherds and flocks, and it's quite an amazing setting. Now, imagine Jesus sitting there with his disciples in the shadow of this pagan worship, asking this question, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, there weren't any polling questions operations in those days. There was no Barna. There was no Gallup to find out what are the people really thinking about Jesus. But they answered the question. Some say John the Baptist. It was Herod himself. Back in verse 7, Herod, after he had put John to death, thought, well, maybe this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others say Elijah. Why Elijah? One of the last verses of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, Malachi writes, See, I'll send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I'll come and strike the land with a curse. And so there was a very clear expectation among some that literally Elijah would come back before the coming of the Messiah. Well, that prophecy was fulfilled, but in a different way than the people thought. It wasn't the literal Elijah being raised from the dead, but as you know, it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist's parents were told that that the child to be born would go forth before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11 said this, he is Elijah who is to come. So John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord, as the prophet Malachi had foretold. And then still there were others who thought that Jesus was one of the prophets brought back to life. That's pretty complimentary, heady comparisons, I think you will agree. Very complimentary, but they were all wrong. There are still many complimentary opinions of Jesus out there. But, you know, what I've discovered is people don't talk about Jesus much anymore. Have you noticed that? He doesn't come up. 
And if he does come up, people have very strange views of him, for sure. But Jesus is about to see that clarified as not only does Peter confess, but Jesus develops the understanding of what that means. So let's be done with what the people are saying out there. Here's the important thing. You're the guys who've been traveling around with me all this time. You've seen, you've seen everything that's happened. Who do you say that I am? And in each of the Gospels that include this narrative, the you is in the emphatic position in the Greek text. You. Who do you say that I am? It's, it's interesting because up to this point, the clearest confessions of the identity of Jesus have come from the powers of darkness. In chapter 4, a demon confesses, I know who you are, Holy One of God. And in chapter 8, from the Gerasene demoniac, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? But now comes Peter. We don't know how long it took him to answer. We know he was somewhat impetuous, so I imagine that it didn't take long. But Peter said, the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. And as you know, Christos is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Mashiach or Messiah, both meaning anointed one uh, in the Old Testament, uh, prophets, uh, priests and kings were anointed, and these were anointed with a small a, but also as you think about Old Testament uh, texts, there's the promise of the anointed one, not just an anointed one, but the anointed one, the Messiah. And in him, the offices of the prophet and priest and king would find their culmination, all in that one person. And last week, you heard an excellent exposition of Psalm 110 in which Nathan revealed to you how that psalm shows the, uh, the kingly and the priestly role of the Savior and how important it would be that the Messiah fulfill those roles and the role of the prophet as well. These were amazing words coming out of Peter's mouth. And in uh, Matthew's account, we have Jesus' response to Peter's confession, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood. This has been revealed to you by God. This is God's identification of me. And that must have been a great, a great sign of, a sigh of relief, for sure. We got, it, we got it right. And Luke's gospel has reminded us all along, this is going to be the one who is going to be born of you, Mary, is going to be the Son of the Most High. But he's not merely the Son of God, he is God the Son. And so Luther could say, you point to the whole man Jesus and say, that is God. But Peter and the disciples didn't quite, quite get that yet. So it's a turning point in their understanding about Jesus' identity. This is an important question for everybody to ask today, I think. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? I'm not just asking a question that's a question of intellectual capacity, asking a question that addresses the heart. Is He more to you than just a sentimental character? 
Or is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the Savior? Is he the fullness of all he came to do? And that really leads to the next clarification, the next turning point. It was important for the disciples to understand not only the identity of Jesus, but what he came to do. What's his mission? Verse 21, Jesus warns them. He says, charge, Jesus, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Why? Well, we do understand that the Jewish expectation at the time was that there would be a radical movement against Rome. And so Jesus was not intent on beginning a political insurrection at all. No, it was going to be important for him to develop his ministry and his mission according to his Father's will. So what is his mission? Look at verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He identifies himself as the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite identification of himself. It's not a, a title of humility. It's a title of glory. Just check out Daniel 7. It is one to come who is God himself in the flesh. But we're told in terms of his mission that he must suffer many things. Well, suffer, that's not good, but suffer at whose hands? Certainly, that's going to be the Romans too, because they're not going to be interested in a rival king. But see what Jesus says. He says, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised from the dead. Certainly, the scribes should understand. They should be able to see that this is the Messiah based on what they know of the law. But they didn't. And he must be killed. Can you imagine how jarring these words must have been to the disciples after everything they'd seen? He has to suffer, and he has to be killed. We do understand as well that there were many texts in the Old Testament talked about the suffering of the Messiah, the 22nd Psalm, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, for example. But this was something that was required. It's not something that might happen. It was something that must happen. The Son of Man must suffer and be killed. You know, when it comes to suffering for you and for me, I think it's something that comes upon us, isn't it? It's not something that we hope for. It's not something we long for. It's not something that uh, we think is going to happen. It, it happens, whether it's a, an accident or a diagnosis. But he knew for, that for him to fulfill his mission, he must suffer and die. But that's not the end of the story. He says he will rise from the dead. The Messiah is the one who's the fulfillment of the promise of David, that he will not allow his soul to decay in Sheol. Now, how do the disciples re respond to this? We know how they respond in Matthew's account. Does Peter say, this sounds good to me? Just exactly what I have in mind. Is that what Peter said? No, Peter said, no, Lord. Well, there are two words that should never go together. Do you know that? No, Lord. This should never happen to you. Peter had lost it when uh, he had lost Jesus when Jesus said he must suffer and be killed. 
But then you remember what Jesus said to Peter. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. So they weren't getting it. In fact, they were not going to get it until after Jesus rose from the dead. Remember Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says, you know, we didn't understand this until he rose from the dead. Then we understood. We understood that this was a fulfillment of Scripture. And so in terms of the mission of the Messiah, the mission of Jesus, again, people are very confused. A lot of people believe that he came to be a good example. Yep, he was a good example, all right, one which we could never keep perfectly. He's a great teacher, all right, yes, but we don't heed his teaching. Then there's people like Deepak Chopra, who wrote a book called The Third Jesus, and uh, he says the first one is a sketchy historical figure. He's talking about a development here. A second, an abstract theological creation. And uh, finally, he says the third Jesus is intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. You know what that is? And I'm going to use very complicated theological terminology here. It's gobbledygook. Now you tell you that's Whitmer's technical theological terminology here. It's gobbledygook. Whenever people move away from what the Scriptures say about Jesus, who He is, and what He came to do, it's going to be into the strange speculative material that absolutely makes no sense. Now, He came to be the prophet, the consummate prophet. In fact, what follows this is the trans transfiguration. And God, the voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the one who came to offer himself. He's the priest and the sacrifice, both together. But he's also the one who reigns forever because of that great triumph over death. And so we see the turning point is a turning point in understanding his identity. He is the Messiah, but that has to be understood in a turning point in the understanding of his mission. Uh, the mission of the Messiah is to come, suffer, die, and rise from the dead. But then we have a turning point in understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would, would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, as you look at these verses, you see a reflection of what Jesus said about his mission. Jesus came to die, to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. And there's a sense for sure in which, as believers, we suffer and we die and we rise from the dead. Now, our suffering is not a, a means of atonement by any means, but as we walk with Jesus, our walk with Jesus is cruciform. It's in the form of the cross, and it begins with denying ourselves and embracing Jesus Christ. Again, the disciples, uh, just uh, across the page, you can see that the disciples are told again that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and die. And what do they say then? They start talking about, well, who's going to have the most important place of privilege? And we shouldn't really laugh at them. I, I laugh at them, but I laugh at myself too because we lose this so easily. The furniture of following is not a throne. It's a cross. It's not an easy chair. It's a cross. It begins with denying, denying self. 
This is one thing we don't like to do. As children are born into the world, they learn... Well, here's the way I, you've probably heard me describe my understanding of the terrible twos. The terrible twos is when our sinful natures learn to walk and talk. That's all it is. Think about it. And what are the words, what are the words that children first say? Often it's no, no. Yep, I see you saying no. And what else? Mine, that's right. Mine. No, mine. Share. No, mine. And, you know, we become very, as we grow, we become a little more sophisticated, though, but isn't that what's in our hearts? Mine. Somebody says share. No. Mine. So Jesus says we need to deny ourselves, and this denial fundamentally has two parts. Fundamentally, we deny ourselves as the source of our own eternal destiny. We have to deny that. If Jesus is the Messiah, He came to do what He came to do, we can't do that for ourselves. But then secondly, it is to deny ourselves in terms of making a life for ourselves. What is the abundant life? Well, we are so, we are so self-centered. Uh, shortly after Twitter came out, and I know you all tweet every day, um, but shortly afterwards they analyzed the subject matter of the tweets. And by now, you should know that there are 6,000 tweets a second, 6,000 tweets every second, and there are 500 million tweets a day. But what's the subject matter of these tweets? Um, Rutgers University actually researched this, and they discovered that the heart of Twitter is not informing, but me-forming. In other words, I'm telling you about me. Don't you want to know everything that I'm doing all the time? Well, Twitter gives you access, ability to do that. I'm so bored, sitting in my cubicle, having tuna fish sandwich for lunch. Who is this guy I'm listening to on this cable sermon, this, this uh, podcast sermon? Anyway, but the, the writer of the article noted that... Um, Rutgers University own account is the same way, and so we're so we're so self-oriented. But Jesus says, "And we need to die. We need to die himself to self." It's not like Shirley MacLaine's approach uh, to life, where she says, "The most pleasurable journey you must take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. The only thing you uh, you are working toward." And the consummation is the consummation of your own identity. That's what I have been trying to do all my life, she writes. How disappointing that must be. No, no. And Jesus says, deny yourself, die to yourself. Take up the cross daily. This is the first time in Luke's gospel that the word cross is found. And it's not found in reference specifically to the work of Jesus in his own life, but he's talking about the work of Jesus in our lives. And so again, this is a death. This is death to self. And we're told to follow. It's a daily following. Now, and some, some folks think about the cross as a daily or a particular affliction, as if they say, that's the cross that I bear. But it's more than that. It's living every light, day of our lives, seeking to put to death our self-centeredness 
and walking in the new life that we have received in Jesus Christ. It's to serve rather than be served. It's service in the home, it's service in the church, it's service in the world. It's cross-shaped service. It's cross-shaped speech. It's cross-shaped attitudes. It's not, as Leon Morris notes, something that it's one and done. It's something that we live with. Follow the tense is present. It's ongoing, ongoing. And I think the question that has to be asked is, well, what, what difference does knowing Jesus really make in your life every day? How does knowing Jesus and walking with Jesus shape the way you think, shape the way you respond? What's the difference between the way you respond now and the way you would have responded before? That's part of progressive sanctification, the following he says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's the real bottom line. And Jesus has brought people into this reality in, in several cases, several times. He talks about the man who is building barns. And he said, I just need one more barn, one more thing, living life for this world and this world alone. What did the word came... Thou fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Who will now take possession of what you've gained? Now, I have to admit, admit to you that one of the things I love to watch every first Saturday of May, I love to watch a Kentucky Derby. I'm not a gambler, not a gambler, but I like to watch the pageantry and, you know, the horses are beautiful. But I saw something, I saw something yesterday that I've never seen before. They showed a video of a guy walking in with a stack of $100 bills. They were $100,000 in cash to put a bet on a horse. I said to Barb, I said, honey, I've never seen a stack of $100 bills. I've never seen $100,000 in cash in my life. And guess what? He bet on the wrong horse. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I don't, I don't know his heart. I, I know that's, that is certainly not a wise use of one's, one's money, but you think about the ways that people seek to establish for themselves a, a life and a reputation uh, in this world as if this is all there is. This is not all there is. No. There's an eternal destiny at stake. And Jesus is trying to point his disciples to the fact that if you understand me and you follow me, you give your life for me, some of them, many of them, most of them would give their lives literally for Jesus. But in the end, it doesn't matter what you give up in this life. You can never give up more than you will gain. Jesus said in Romans 8, he said, I'm convinced the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that God has prepared for His people. Now, that's a promise, my friends. And what does it mean to follow Christ? Well, Francis Cosgrove wrote a book published Essentials of Discipleship a few years ago. And here are some options, and you might want to weigh in terms of how you respond to the options related to obedience. Number one, I'm going to do whatever I want to do no matter what God wants. That's not dying to self. 
Second, if God will give me what I want first, then I will give him an equal exchange. Let's bargain with God. No, that's not it. Third, I will give God what he wants first. Then in faith believe he will give me what I want. No, there's no death of self there. But what's the answer? Well, the right approach is I will give God whatever he wants regardless of whether he gives me what I want. That is what it means to die to self. That is what it means to have a focus, an otherworldly focus. It's as Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I live, I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So it begins with being crucified with Christ, being, die, being dead to self, and then living our lives in the power of the Spirit. Now you may ask yourself, well, Pastor Tim, I thought this was such an important text to you. Certainly, you, you know, you haven't, you haven't said anything about how this impacted your life. Well, here's how it goes on to impact my life. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I was a freshman at Westchester University, and the Lord had already been bringing some influences around my life, including uh, a, uh, a godly house mother, that's they used to have house chaperones in the dormitories down there. And the, the one in Barb's dorm took a particular interest in us, and she would invite us to her apartment for chicken dinner, fried chicken. She was from Virginia. And it was fried chicken that I'd never really tasted. It was so good. That was before Shady Mabel's fried chicken. <laughs> but the thing about Hazel is that she would, after she fried it, she gave us a great meal, she would just open up her Bible and start teaching us. She wouldn't say, Do you, can we have a Bible study now? She'd just open her Bible and start teaching us. And so God was using that to, to, to draw us, to draw me. And there were also some of my uh, fellow music majors who were um, talking to me as well. But it was when I came home from school, just down the street, and uh, mother, my mother was responsible for teaching, leading a Sunday school class at the church next door. And she asked me to look at this text and see what I thought. And it was this text. And the words that really struck me were, verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. And I knew, I knew that I was ashamed of Jesus. There's just no other way to put it. If it came up, and you know, in college it comes up more, especially back then, I didn't stand up for Jesus. I didn't speak a word for Jesus. I didn't give a testimony for Jesus. And what I came to realize was that my shame was because I didn't understand who Jesus really was. I didn't really understand what he came to do. But it was in the use of that text that I came to realize that, you know, I don't want the Lord to be ashamed of me when he comes one day. I want to be enveloped. I want to be wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want to understand and know for sure that my sins are forgiven. And that was a turning point in my life, friends. I didn't know, I didn't know then that I was going to be called to be a preacher. I didn't know that. So, so don't think that if you respond to the gospel, God's going to make a preacher out of you. He's going to make something out of you. He's going to use you But that was a turning point for me. 
there's glory to come, yes. And the glory that is being spoken about in verse 27, there are seven different interpretations of that, which I don't have time to go over today. Some say it's transfiguration that comes next, but I believe that it's the some who will see him, uh, see the kingdom uh, before death are those who will see the triumph of his death and resurrection and ascension. But turning points, it's a turning point in the life of the disciples. And I would ask you today about the turning point in your life. Have you come to the turning point in your life where you really understand who Jesus is? That he came not just to be a, a good guy and a good example and a good teacher, but he came to pay the penalty for your sins. Have you come to that turning point? And maybe there's a turning point you need to come to today in which there's something in your life that you know is not the way it should be. But maybe today is the day that you will find in the Spirit the conviction to follow through on a new commitment. Turning points are happening in our lives all the time and in people's lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity we have for your Spirit to be at work in our hearts and lives. And I ask, O oh Lord, that... Well, first of all, I thank you for bringing me to this turning point moment in my life. And I thank you that you are doing that for people every day all around the world. And Lord, I ask if there's someone here who has perhaps gone to church for a long time like I did without really understanding or really believing, I pray they might have a turning point today, turn to you in faith and repentance. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.